MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, October 7th, 2021. Today, high profile targets of subpoenas from the Select Committee on the Insurrection are planning to defy them. The battle over the debt ceiling and filibuster continues as Mitch McConnell caves. New top federal prosecutors have been confirmed by the Senate for the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York. The Department of Justice is reconsidering charging FBI agents in the Larry Nassar case. A group of legal heavyweights has asked the D.C. court panel to investigate Jeffrey Clark for his role in trying to overturn the election. And vaccines have saved tens of thousands of lives, according to a new study. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Holy smokes, it's a busy day, Dana. It is indeed. All these stories, I know you have a lot on your plate outside the podcast, but yeah, so much going on. Yeah, and we've got some good news today, too, uh, and some weird news and some not so good news. We'll get to it all. Uh, I just want to let everybody know, tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 3.30 Pacific, I'll be moderating a discussion and a Q&A with Mary Trump for her virtual book signing for her book. It's going to be so good. The Reckoning. And that's an event with books and books in Miami. I'm so excited about that. I'm honored she asked. Oh, by the way, if you want to sign up and, and save your spot, I've tweeted and posted a link on Twitter and my personal Facebook so you can reserve your spot. And Dana, for the holidays, we have re-upped the patrons sponsoring patrons thing that we were doing for, for a very long time because we just got a, like a flurry of people who wanted to donate. They just got new jobs and they wanted to donate subscriptions. Basically, you know, there's a lot of people out there who can't swing even three bucks a month, but yep. they, they want to be subscribers and patrons and have access to all the stuff. And you can do that for them for 36 bucks. You can buy a year's subscription to Muller She Wrote, the MSW Book Club and the Daily Beans for someone who can't swing it. You do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and scrolling down to the pod, bottom of the page. You'll see patrons helping patrons, I believe. And I'll be starting the next MSW Book Club series, November 7th. We just confirmed with Alexander Vindman. Uh, we'll be covering his book, Here, Right Matters, and he'll join us. So fantastic. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. He'll be joining us for that final episode, too, to answer Patreon and Supercaster questions. So subscribe to the MSW Book Club wherever you get your podcasts. And also, thank you to They Might Be Giants for creating our new audio logo that you're now hearing at the top of each episode. I hope you love it as much as I do. And uh, today, later in the show, Dana, I'm going to be speaking with congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell, about the debt ceiling fight. He was there on Capitol Hill today and his exclusive story. His, he scooped this story on Trump coordinating Meadows, Patel, Bannon and Scavino to defy the select committee's subpoenas. So that's a big, big story. And we're going to be talking about the implications of that. Sounds great. Sounds like we have a great episode ahead. Yeah. So with all that out of the way... <laughs> Do we have time for headlines? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah, a couple. All right, let's do it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, first up today in the hot notes, a group of legal heavyweights on Tuesday asked the disciplinary panel of the D.C. Court of Appeals to investigate former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark. He's the guy who used his official position in the federal government to try to overturn Trump's election defeat. 
In the 15-page ethics complaint, the group said former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark should face disciplinary action over his alleged attempt in late December to subvert the 2020 election results, in part by proposing that he and two other top DOJ officials send letters to state leaders, including those in Georgia, making the unfounded claim that the Department of Justice identified concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election in multiple states. And if you remember, asked them to appoint an alternate slate of electors so that Mike Pence could throw out those electors during the certification of the election per the six-part coup plan penned by John Eastman. Yeah. I'm wondering I'm wondering if this group also files an ethics complaint against him as he is also a lawyer. The central allegation is that Clark's plan amounted to an attempt to interfere with the administration of justice by seeking to derail the January 6th certification process. Such tampering is prohibited by the district's ethics rules for lawyers. It's prohibited. Unlike other Trump allied attorneys like Giuliani and the Kraken elite strike force who've been hit with sanctions and possible disbarment and you know suspension of their licenses, Clark so far has faced no repercussions for his behavior. But the complaint alleges that Clark's conduct as a DOJ official was even more egregious than the sanctioning of pro-Trump lawyers like Giuliani, Powell, and Lynn Wood, whose efforts centered on court challenges and right-wing media appearances. An attorney for Clark, Robert Driscoll of the law firm McGlinchey Stafford, I guess, declined to provide a comment. And the ethics complaint does not request a specific sanction to be taken against Clark, Dana. Instead, it asks the Disciplinary Council for the D.C. Court of Appeals to initiate disciplinary proceedings and publicly acknowledge an ongoing probe if one is opened. The group also alleges Clark ran afoul of the district's lawyers' ethics rules that forbid dishonesty and deceit. (laughs) Quote, to put it simply, the charge is Clark wanted to send false statements to state officials with the goal of getting Trump declared the winner on January 6th. (laughs) Pretty cut and dried. He drafted these false statements and attempted, though without success, to get his bosses to go along. That conduct, if true, violates the rule. Big story. And uh, we'll find out more about that. So this next one makes me very, very happy because I think this is necessary. So the Justice Department is reviewing its decision not to charge FBI agents who failed to properly investigate sex abuse allegations leveled against Larry Nassar. Now, we know that he is the disgraced former U.S. gymnastics doctor who sexually abused his patients, including several world famous gymnasts. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Omonico made the announcement at a hearing Tuesday after the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, lawmakers on the panel have sharply criticized the Justice Department for not pursuing false statements charges against a supervisory FBI agent and his boss for what the agency's inspector general concluded were lies to internal investigators to cover up their failures. And if you listen to those brave women mm. yeah, in front of Congress, you know that these, these charges should absolutely happen. Monica told the committee that the newly confirmed head of the criminal division, Kenneth Polite, as this is a quote, is currently reviewing this matter, including new information that has come to light. And she did not say what the new information was, but said the review is being conducted with a sense of urgency and gravity. Now, it is rare. It is rare for the Justice Department to even consider reopening a case that's been closed without charges. Now, in the case of the Nassar agents, one retired years ago, the other was fired this summer, this summer. In the wake of scathing report, a scathing report that finally came in by the Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz, and it found major missteps in the FBI's handling of allegations against Nassar in 2015, allowing him to basically victimize scores more patients before he was arrested by state authorities the following year. So 
we're going to follow the story. One of the, you know, one of the victims said that she gave a statement in, I think it was 17 months later, mm-hmm. the FBI agent wrote it up and, and made up all kinds of things in the statement. It's just, it was, it was horrifying. So I do hope that they actually reopen this and charge these guys because they, they deserve to go to prison. Yeah. And I think it was interesting. And I, th- I pointed out on Twitter that, you know, Lisa Monaco declined to appear at that hearing mm-hmm. and there was a lot of blowback from that. And I don't know if those two things are connected, if, if, if she would do this otherwise, but um, she is saying they're reconsidering it and that's huge. So also. Talking about justice, the U.S. Senate has confirmed Damian Williams late Tuesday as the new U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. The office of Senator Chuck Schumer said, making Mr. Williams the first African-American to lead one of the nation's most powerful federal prosecutor's offices. It's based in Manhattan, as we know. That office handles complex fraud, terrorism, public corruption cases, including some that in recent years reached the former guy. Mr. Williams, who's 41, Dana, what am I doing with my life? Stop it. I can <laughs> list the things. There's a litany. Shut your mouth. 41. Okay, when I was 41, I wasn't. He has been a Southern District prosecutor for nearly a decade, most recently overseeing the unit that investigates fraud on Wall Street. So he's coming from the Southern District, and he's been there for a decade since he was 31. So he's, a, he's, got, a, he's got prosecutor's chops. Also late Tuesday, the Senate confirmed Breon S. Peace, a lawyer in private practice, to lead the federal prosecutor's office in Brooklyn. That's the Eastern District. The Eastern District has successfully prosecuted high-profile defendants like R. Kelly at a racketeering trial last month and in 2019, the notorious Mexican drug lord El Chapo. We'll go into more detail next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45 on that podcast. If you haven't, I suggest you subscribe. Definitely do. And I get to close out with some more good news. Even in its first months, the U.S. coronavirus vaccination campaign saved lives of tens of thousands of older people. And that's according to a federal government report that was released on Tuesday. So from January through May, vaccinations prevented about 265,000 cases, 107,000 hospitalizations, 39,000 deaths among Medicare recipients who are either over the age of 65 or disabled. And that's from the Department of Health and Human Services. That's what their analysis said. Now, that includes a period of time when relatively few people had received the shots. Vaccination began in the United States in mid-December and at first was generally limited to the elderly and people with serious underlying conditions. So obviously, this is a huge, huge, uh, the analysis is, is, is it, it, they work. Vaccinations work, people. Please go get vaccinated for not vaccinated. They work. Yeah. And the brilliant coordination plan to roll these vaccinations out by the Biden administration is evident. And and Dana, I hope we get more analysis for how many lives the vaccination has saved since we've ramped up considerably the amount of vaccines, particularly in the first, you know, April, May, June. And then, of course, we plateaued a little bit. But in the last couple of months since the vaccine, a month or so since vaccine mandates went into effect, we've severe, like seriously increased the number of vaccinated adults. I think we're at 68 percent of those who are able to be vaccinated mm-hmm. have been. Yep. So very good. It would be cool to see those numbers. Yep. And it would be also interesting to see. And I think there's been a lot of stuff sort of released, but the differences in you know, the red and blue areas, you know, those that voted for Biden and those that supported the former guy, because I would put all of my beans that the numbers <laughs> are higher with the former guy's areas. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. And we have seen that, too. Yeah. I mean, just in just in the case rises and death tolls that mm-hmm. have been uh, presented. But 
you know, and, and we can sort of read it by that. And, you know, I think that those vaccine mandates that, that Biden put into place recently, we've seen a significant decrease in the number of cases and deaths. And we may have prevented his action to mandate vaccines where he could, where he was able, may have prevented a, a terrible winter wave of the Delta variant Absolutely. and possibly and possibly the formation of, of new strains. Mm hmm. For sure. um, Which, you know, is still a possibility. But here we are. All right. We'll be right back to discuss the latest in the debt ceiling fight in Congress and an exclusive reporting from The Guardian that Meadows, Bannon, Patel and Scavino plan on defying the select committee subpoenas. And we'll be talking with the reporter that broke that story, Hugo Lowell. So stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's A.G. for The Beans. I am an unabashed cereal lover. As a kid, it was always my favorite food. I used to sit down, pour practically a whole box in a giant mixing bowl and watch The Muppet Show. But as an adult, I've had to give it up because of all the carbs and sugar and chemicals. But thankfully, I've discovered Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon tastes like the cereal we had as kids, but it isn't loaded with fat, sugar, and chemicals. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, four net grams of carbs, and only 140 calories per serving. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. And best of all, it tastes amazing. I was so surprised when I first ate it. You can build your own box or get a variety pack of flavors. And the flavors available are cocoa, fruity, frosted, blueberry, cinnamon, and my current favorite, peanut butter. And Magic Spoon is bringing back two super popular flavors, cookies and cream and maple waffle. Make sure to get these. They're delicious and indulgent. Just head to magicspoon.com slash dailybeans to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word, at checkout to save $5 off your order. And by the way, Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's 100% it's risk-free because it has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. So it's worth the try. It's amazing. You'll be surprised. I was surprised. It's delicious. Remember, you get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash dailybeans. And don't forget to use code DAILYBEANS to save $5 off at checkout. And thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back. I am proud today to be talking to my friend on Twitter, at least, and hopefully my new friend in real life. He is the congressional reporter for The Guardian. Please welcome Hugo Lowell. Hugo, hello. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Busy, busy day um, at the Capitol and with, with everything that's going on. So I'm glad that you took the time to speak with us today because you have an amazing scoop, an exclusive for The Guardian about a plan to defy subpoenas issued by the Select Committee on the Insurrection the January 6th committee in Congress to uh, four probably recalcitrant witnesses. And we're about to find out that they definitely are recalcitrant witnesses. And that's Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, Kosh Patel and Steve Bannon. Tell us what you learned. Yeah. So the way this is being done is it's being organized through former President Trump and his legal team, which is being led by two throwbacks from the impeachment era and from his campaign the guy that's leading it is um, a Trump campaign lawyer, Justin Clark, and the other guy's former deputy White House counsel, Pat Philbin, who you might remember uh, made arguments uh, in the Senate. So the way this works is they instruct the lawyers for Meadows and Bannon and Scavino and Cash Patel to not cooperate with these subpoenas. And this is why we can say with uh, a large degree of certainty that these guys are not going to cooperate because Trump is ordering them not to cooperate and they're prepared to listen to the former president. 
When uh, are they expected to make this announcement or are they just going to no, no call, no show, essentially? It's a good question. It's not entirely clear yet. And I think it's partly because Trump and his legal team are not quite ready to announce either way. I do know and I can say that Justin Clark, the guy who's leading the legal effort, is expected to send a letter to the committee basically outlining their reasons for not complying with the subpoenas on behalf of the four aides. And it basically will say, one, that the committee is engaging in overreach and congressional overreach and that they don't have the authority to go digging around for call records and email records, which is which were the, the, the material subpoenaed. Uh, and then they will make this case on the grounds of executive privilege, saying any communications between the former president and his aides are privileged and they are secret and cannot be made public or cannot even be turned over to the select committee. And this is going to touch off, obviously, a big legal fight as to the congressional uh, oversight authority over former presidents. Yeah, and we we were expecting, uh, well, we were prepared. We had girded our loins, so to speak, for a, for a defiance of the subpoena. And I think that that may have been why the committee went straight for, for these particular four witnesses is because they imagined that there would be a, a, an ensuing court battle. Has anyone responded? Did you reach out uh, for comment from uh, anyone from the select committee to find out? I know that they're, they haven't taken anything off the table as far as criminal contempt, et cetera. But do we know how yet the, the committee is going to respond to this? So I've talked to members and I've talked to kind of uh, professional staff on the committee. And they say, look, our main option here is to send these subpoenas and the fact that they're not complying and make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. It sounds like the most likely avenue for prosecution comes through the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, as opposed to DOJ or main justice proper. It doesn't really make a difference. It's just more of a procedural thing. But it would be interesting to see how the Justice Department and the Office of Legal Counsel respond to this, because for previous instances of January 6th testimony, most recently with people like Jeff Rosen and Richard Donahue, uh, when they testified to the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee and the House Oversight Committee, the Office of Legal Counsel allowed them to testify. And this is partly why former President Trump's lawyers think that there will be a similar precedent extended here, and ultimately they, they will lose the executive privilege fight but criminal contempt or criminal prosecution, rather, is their main option. They've also floated things like, you know, we can hold them in contempt of Congress. But all of these things are kind of really tricky. And ultimately, if you talk to Trump's lawyers, they think if there's a real prolonged legal battle, it'll end up in the Supreme Court. Yeah, which is probably where they prefer it end up than in the hands of D.C. U.S. Attorney or Department of Justice. Because I assume if they, you know, if they send these criminal referrals for contempt to, to the D.C., U.S. Attorney's Office. That I'm sure they'll have to run that up uh, through Department of Justice. And as you said, they have already said we we're, we're waiving executive privilege for for these other these previous documents with Donahue, for example. And I know President Biden has said he plans on not exerting executive privilege in these in these cases too. And I I think it's I think it's up to him. But I don't know. I don't have any recall of a of a former president executive privilege except Nixon and and that was denied in the courts and there so there's precedent for that. Yeah, the executive privilege fight's quite interesting and so the White House has actually walked back press secretary Jen Psaki's comments about, you know, that that Biden will generally waive executive privilege. The White House now says she was referring to comments 
and a previous question about Rosen and Donahue's testimony and that it was just kind of broad brushstrokes and that it wasn't meant to convey the idea that for the January 6th subpoenas uh, or the January 6th right, subpoenas for the documents to the National Archives or to these individuals that the Biden DOJ would waive or executive privilege. It's not even how the process works, actually. The way this works is the National Archives or these individuals have these documents. They say these are the documents pertaining to the investigation. Then it's sent to the White House and it's sent to Trump at the same time. And they have 30 days to come back and say, well, we might waive executive privilege on, let's say, 30 out of 100 documents. The rest of them we think you know, are covered by executive privilege, are covered by national security concerns, and we can't release them. And that's kind of where the um, the tussle lies and Trump is going to come back and we, we already, we've already re- reported his his legal position, which is all of them are subject to executive privilege and we can't release any of them. So that's kind of the executive privilege fight. But I don't know at the moment if the Biden DOJ really has an appetite to really prosecute these guys. The select committee members publicly say that they're hopeful and they're optimistic because, you know, this is now the Biden administration, it's a Democratic president. But if you actually talk to the staff on the committee, they really see a very, very long process. Even if their subpoenas get upheld uh, at the U.S. attorney level, they really think it's going to, you know, they're going to be tied up in courts with appeals. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and that's always sort of been the, the modus operandi of Trump's administration. Uh, as, I'm thinking as far back as the first impeachment, trying to withhold witnesses and documents and just run out the clock because, you know, we're already almost a year into this Congress and it expires at the end of next year. There's a whole new Congress and you'd have to re-up those things if you wanted to continue the fight. It would be past the midterm elections. I imagine that that probably would happen. At least they would see it to its conclusion if it if it extended beyond this particular Congress, provided we hold the House in the elections. So there's a lot of different considerations here, you know, and then I'm also thinking about other possible considerations, too. I mean, I guess it is Trump's legal right to make legal objections to subpoenas, the over executive privilege. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, this could be obstruction of justice or witness tampering. But I don't I don't necessarily know that that dovetails with uh, his his ability to to try to exert executive privilege over these conversations and documents. Yeah. And I think some of the confusion is because these things overlap, right? The select committee has asked the National Archives to turn over pages and pages of White House, official White House memos, White House core detail records. And the select committee is separately also asking these four individuals to turn over their emails and core detail records and any correspondence they had when they were at the White House. And so it's quite clear that Trump, under the Presidential Records Act, has a, a right to argue that, you know, to, to disagree with, with Biden, essentially, and argue that, you know, certain documents are protected under executive privilege, and he, he can go to court and um, complain about this. I think with the witnesses, it's a little bit trickier for him, because someone like Steve Bannon, who hasn't really ha- been in the administration, you know, he was kind of like a strategist, but he didn't really formally hold a White House role since he was ejected after he had a bust up with Reince Priebus after Charlottesville when he advised Trump to make the both sides comment. So on, on that front, I think Trump's got a harder, more difficult legal path. But by conflating the two, and actually Trump, Trump is doing this himself to kind of sow confusion and doubt as to what really he is allowed to do and not allowed to do, I think it does benefit him. Yeah, that's a really good point about Bannon. And I, and you know, that 
maybe they, there could be some sort of a split decision on that, uh, either at a lower level or all the way up to the Supreme Court. I don't know. We'll see. But, you know, like I said, there is precedent for this. So it would be weird to kind of go around it. <laughs> but, you know, we'll see what happens. There's also another battle going on in the Capitol right now. And you're the congressional reporter for The Guardian regarding the debt ceiling. And I, I just wanted to ask you briefly about that. But I do have to take a quick break. Will you, will you stay with me? Sure. Thank you. Everybody, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Allison Gill. And today's episode of The Beans is sponsored by Upstart. What would you do if you didn't have high interest loans or credit card debt? Think of that freedom. Now, with Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly and easily and start making your dreams a reality. Upstart is the fast, easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards or consolidating high interest debt or just funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed low monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Rather than focusing on your credit score alone, Upstart considers other factors. You're more than a number to them. So they look at your income and your employment history and your, you know, credit history, and they can find you a smarter rate with their trusted partners. And you can check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes online for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And you can even receive funds as fast as one business day after your loan is accepted. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today by going to upstart.com slash dailybeans. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. And please use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and other certain information provided in your loan application. So just head to upstart.com slash dailybeans today. You'll be glad you did. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking to the congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. And Hugo, in between the time you and I set up the interview to talk about your exclusive for The Guardian with the subpoenas, we had this meeting, a caucus meeting over the debt ceiling battle. And the latest I've heard is, you know, Biden was saying, maybe we'll carve out a filibuster to allow for just debt ceiling votes. And then McConnell, apparently, according to, I think, Manu Raju, is saying, oh, well, in that case, maybe we'll go ahead and raise the debt ceiling for a little while. He seems very scared of the, the possibility of even putting a crack in the filibuster with, with Manchin and Cinema. What did you find out today when the members emerged from that meeting? Well, first of all, that's absolutely right about McConnell. He is really, really scared that Democrats are going to use any of these bills from voting rights, the debt limit, to, to even infrastructure to try and make carve outs to the filibuster. When, you know, he's in the, when he's in the minority, he really has very little options to affect legislation apart from the fact that he has this filibuster and he can stop debate. He can basically prevent these bills from ever turning into law. And so this really has been a driving factor for McConnell. Less on voting rights, but definitely on the on the on the debt limit. Because late last night we had Democratic senators floating the idea of, well, if Republicans are going to be so difficult and block every path for us to raise the debt ceiling, then you know maybe we do a carve out. And then this morning McConnell came back very very quickly and said, oh, in that case we're going to give you two options: one to expedite raising the debt ceiling by reconciliation, and the other option is to effectively pass a allow you to pass a short-term bill that suspends or or lifts the debt ceiling through the end of November. And we don't have details on this yet. Senate Democrats came out of the room and their two talking points was one, McConnell uh, caved. And the number two was, uh, well, we haven't actually seen the proposal yet, so we can uh, agree on anything either way. But it does seem like reconciliation is definitely off the table. Ah, so, so no uh, indication from the other side as to whether they would accept any deal because they haven't seen one yet, as, at least as far as extending it for a short time. Also, 
that strikes me, and this is now we're just in speculation land, but that strikes me as a kind of a little bit of a lack of confidence on behalf of McConnell to hold the Senate in 2022, because otherwise, I, you know, I, I imagine he when if he won the Senate back in the midterms that he would just march all over the filibuster and just eliminate it completely. So I don't know, that seems his reticence to have the filibuster touched at all. Do you think it's short term or do you think it could be long term? It's very interesting. I think it's very hard to read with McConnell, um, because if you think back to previous filibuster carve outs, when Democrats wanted to do a filibuster carve out, for judicial nominees when Obama couldn't get his appointments through the Senate. And Harry Reid said, okay, for nominations, we're going to scrap the filibuster. You know, McConnell was very, very adamant then that this was a terrible idea. And then fast forward to when Trump was in office, well, suddenly it was an excellent idea. You know, McConnell is very, very good at making uh, spurious arguments for things when it suits him. When he's in power, you know, the filibuster doesn't matter so much. Uh, but when Democrats are in power, well, the filibuster can't be touched. And this is just classic McConnell. He's just, he really is playing power games. His own staff tell me privately that, yeah, this is, you know, that these are power games. And their justification for it is, well, if Democrats were in power, they either would do the same thing, or if they're not doing the same thing, they should do the same thing. Hmm. And uh, do you get any sense that an expedited budget reconciliation that you mentioned as a, a, a possible plan B for for getting the, the debt ceiling settled so that there isn't ha- there doesn't have to be a carve out for the filibuster. How how can McConnell help there be an expedited reconciliation process by not doing the all night vote-a-thon amendment things that they that he does? So I think I think I should just say at the top of this that Senate Democrats came out of a caucus meeting and they were pretty adamant that they didn't want to go down the reconciliation route for uh, raising the the, de- uh, the debt limit. And this is partly because it's a really complicated process to do it by reconciliation. Democrats first have to make a resolution that says we're going to suspend the debt ceiling or, or lift the debt ceiling to a certain number, dollar figure. They have to discharge it from the Senate Budget Committee, then they have to vote on it in the Senate. And that process is subject to what we call a voterama. So it's a, a long period of debate when Republican senators can make or offer amendments. And they, this is passed on a party line basis. So it's just you know, 50, 51 Democrats well, 50 Democrats plus um, Vice President Harris um, can send these through. But then after it's gone through the first voterama, it's then got to go to the House. The House has to pass it, and then it comes back to the Senate for a second voterama. And this is why Democrats are very worried. Republicans, if they really wanted to, at this point, when the bill is live, they could put in poison pill amendments, which would, yes, ultimately raise the debt ceiling, but they could also put in amendments that are really unpalatable unpalatable to Democratic voters and, you know, just advance the Republican agenda. And because it's a must-pass bill, Democrats' hands are kind of tied at this point. And so they're adamant they really don't want to go down that route. And instead, what they're suggesting is, okay, we'll just punt this to December and we can deal with it then rather than now. Hmm. Yeah, I have a feeling, though, the Republicans are going to do that poison pill thing, regardless of whether the debt ceiling is included in it. It might be nice to get a deal where, you know, Republicans say, we'll let you do the reconciliation thing. We're not going to do the voterama poison pill thing uh, so you can get the debt ceiling passed so we don't have to touch the filibuster. But I'm not sure I would trust McConnell and hold him to that. But, you know, again, now we're in we're just uh, speculating. We're just going to have to see how this plays out. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, Schumer and Senate Democratic leaders have exactly the same concern. They don't trust McConnell. Uh, Schumer's actually privately says he's very sick of McConnell's, you know, games. You know, Schumer's supposed to be the majority leader, and McConnell's sending out a statement saying, you know, we will allow Democrats to uh, 
to raise the, the the debt limit. And so this has really rankled Senate Democratic leadership. And in in many ways, actually, they won on this occasion. You know, McConnell did cave and offered them a solution that doesn't involve reconciliation to raise the debt limit. And Democrats were celebrating this today. But when this all comes down in December, it's going to be a real crunch time because think about everything else that Congress has punted till December. They've now punted the debt limit to December. They've also punted the government shutdown to December. And in the meantime, they have to deal with intra-party divisions over Biden's $3.5 trillion uh, social spending plan. And all of these deadlines are going to come due in, in, the, in the last weeks of this, uh, of this year. And it's going to be a mammoth battle again. Yeah. And uh, it's a, a very uh, precarious line to walk, I think, for for the Democrats, Pelosi and Schumer. But, uh, you know, what you know, what you just said makes me think that they're at least what they're celebrating the, the Mitch cave. It seems like they might focus more on potentially uh, allowing that short term solution to see if they can hash out the, the budget bill and, and, and possibly take care of the other things, too. And maybe, I don't know, give up their vacation. They're, they're, uh, they don't like to do that. But we'll, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. And I, I appreciate you coming on and explaining all this to us today. Can you uh, tell everyone where they can find and follow you? I, but, you know, besides your work and your amazing work in The Guardian. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Twitter, like most journalists, uh, at uh, Hugo Lowell. I do, we, you know, as all congressional reporters do, we kind of tweet throughout the day uh, about uh, what's happening on Capitol Hill. But this is also where we kind of post our stories. I'm also on Facebook at Hugo Lowell, where I do post the, the biggest stories and clips from uh, TV hits. So if there's a, an, an ever a time when a listener might be inclined to uh, watch me on TV or listen to me on, on the podcast, then uh, it'd be great to uh, have some more fans. Well, wonderful. Very, very good follow on Twitter, Hugo Lowell. And um, again, congratulations on, on the exclusive for The Guardian with the subpoena story. That's a, a, a really good scoop. I appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. And this portion of the show is brought to you by BetterHelp, which is a premier provider of online therapy. Counselors at BetterHelp provide professional support for any issue you might be facing. You know, my own experience with post-traumatic stress has taught me that seeking assistance is more important than trying to deal with these issues on your own. And it's hard to ask for help, which is why BetterHelp is so great. It's convenient. It's easy to use. You can message your counselor at any time from anywhere in the world and you get timely responses. You can even schedule weekly phone or video sessions. And compared to offline counseling, it's far more affordable and financial aids available. And to make sure you have that great therapeutic match, switching counselors is easy and free. Visit BetterHelp's website and read some of their testimonials, like this one by user AL, who says, April is a breath of fresh air. She's so insightful and has a wealth of knowledge, but she's down to earth and easy to talk to. I feel like I'm talking to a friend, so it's easy to really express my thoughts and feelings while receiving the support I need. I'm so grateful for April. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And you can join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. We have a special offer for Daily Beans listeners. You get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash dailybeans. And today's show is also brought to you by Quince. How many times has a price tag stopped you from buying something you really wanted? It happens to me all the time. If you like designer clothes, but not the exorbitant high prices, you are going to love Quince. Quince has luxury products that are incredible, but at great prices. Because most luxury products are marked up eight to 10 times by retailers. But Quince connects you directly with the factories that make products for the world's leading luxury brands. So you get the highest quality products at insanely low prices. I am so glad I discovered Quince. I found incredible apparel, great basics, 
cashmere's bags, bedding, accessories, and more for 50 to 80% less than I would normally pay. They have Italian leather bags handcrafted in Florence. They have silk loungewear and pajamas. They have five-star hotel-quality Turkish cotton bathrobes, 100% grade-A Mongolian cashmere sweaters, Belgian linen sheet sets, and so much more. Quince goods are not only gorgeous and high quality and sold at radically lower prices, but they're also made in a sustainable way, which is very important to us at The Beans. And with Quince, everything is 100% factory direct with no retailer markups or middlemen. And best of all, with Quince, there's free shipping and returns for 365 days. And if you're not completely satisfied, they'll give you a full refund. To get from 50 to 80% off top-of-the-line clothing and home goods, plus free shipping, text the word DAILY to 64000. Again, text DAILY, D-A-I-L-Y, to 64000. Terms apply, available at onequince.com slash terms. Text the word DAILY to 64000 to get started. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. Ah, we need the good news today. We had a couple of good news stories in the beginning there. But after this debt ceiling fight, although, you know, it is good news that McConnell caved, Dana. Well, yeah, I mean, he he's he's a, a diabolical evil genius. Mm. And, and I, I use that term, you know, in, in the worst possible way. But he is. <laughs> he's managed to, to really destroy this country. And uh, that doesn't a stupid man doesn't do that. This is very intentional. So it is nice to know that at least he's showing some cracks of, okay, I'm a little bit scared right now about what's going to happen. There are cracks. Yeah. And and the minute that, you know, Manchin bandied about the idea of a, a filibuster carve out, McConnell's like, no, no, no. Okay. Yep. Oh, oh, no, no. Yeah. Hey, uh, we don't want that. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Um, it's going to it's going to play out. Time moves forward, whether we like it or not. All right. If you have good news to submit or corrections or a confession or if you want to battle a court battle settled in Amy's court or you want to play, you know, find the cat or what the mutt, anything, you can do it by heading over to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. I'll kick us off here with a, a submission from Jen, pronoun she and her. Hello to our beloved queens of the beans, light, love and news. I'm just getting caught up with the book club and I wanted to add some information on your discussion of epigenetics from one of your devoted science crew. Excellent. It's pretty well established science that stressors and trauma can alter how we function through epigenetic modifications. Depending on the type of chemical modification that is attached to DNA, it makes it either easier or more difficult for the cellular machinery that reads and copies the DNA to access it, changing how readily the affected genes are expressed. This can make those individuals more reactive to new stressors. While in the short term, this may provide a beneficial adaptation to a stressful environment, it tends to have a lot of negative long-term health effects. This can become particularly problematic in longer-lived species like humans. These epigenetic changes can also be passed down from parent to offspring, making them more vulnerable to the effects of stress and prone to many conditions like hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and type 2 diabetes. In some animal studies, these genetic changes are still seen seven generations after the initial event. The concept of generational trauma has a very real scientific basis. Thank you for everything you do and the wonderful community you have built. I have a what the mutt entry as my pet tax. Can you guess what our jelly bean is pictured with her boy? What her daddy is, is obvious, but can you guess what breed her mama was? A golden retriever, and I wish she was standing because maybe I could see, but a <laughs> lab? 
Oh, there we go. All right, Golden Retriever. It's oh, not a very big dog. No, um, maybe. I mean, I don't want to say Corgi because her legs are a little bit longer than... Look at the eyes. I can't get past the eyes in the photo where the dog's a little bit wet. So sweet. And the tongue. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, Lab is my best guess, right? Yeah, what do we got? All right, here's what we got. What? Half, oh, no. Come on. Wow. Half Golden Retriever, half Great Dane. Maybe it was like a moderate Dane. Maybe it was like a short Great Dane. My powerful N of one study has determined that Great Dane seems to be genetically recessive to Golden Retriever. Indeed. Totally. There, I don't see any Great Dane. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. All right. This one is next. It's from Denisio de Toro. Dear Beans Queens of the Legumiverse. Legumiverse. Legumiverse? <laughs> say it. Legumiverse. Yeah, I, I would say Legumiverse. Legumiverse. But... I just wanted to give you an update story on the wedding I mentioned in previous message to you about misheard song lyrics. If you recall, I wrote in months ago and shared the story when my now 30-year-old daughter was seven and she misheard the Pete Townsend lyrics of Let My Love Open the Door. I also told the Beans Queens of how I was going to surprise her by having the DJ play that song at the wedding. She heard the lyrics as, let Milo open the door. <laughs> I raised my kids on a steady diet of Nightmare Before Christmas and other Tim Burton films. Her wedding theme was Victorian Gothic. Needless Hell to yeah. say, she has a leaning toward the macabre. Nice. The macabre. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, her and I, friends. Yes, friends. You, indeed. And weeks before the wedding, my daughter told me she had picked out a song for our bride-father dance, but was not going to tell me what her choice was. She wanted to surprise me with it on the day of the wedding. Now, having also raised this girl on a heavy musical diet of Oingo Boingo, I just knew the song she picked out for this special dance would have to be the song Stay, as it's one of our favorite Oingo Boingo songs. So, on the morning of the wedding, I have no idea of the song she picked. I gave the DJ a USB drive with a slow remixed version of Pete Townsend's song, and then I wanted it played a few songs after the bride, father, and groom mother dances were finished. I think I think I know. I think I know where yeah. this is going. Yep. <laughs> so the wedding happened without too much insanity, and then it was time for the bride, father dance. The DJ calls us to the floor. The music starts, and lo and behold, she had picked out the exact same song. And I was going to later surprise her with. So we essentially surprised each other with the exact same song. It was pure perfection. And we danced and missed saying the words together. Both of us grinning ear to ear. I don't know why I feel like I'm going to cry, Angie. Both of us grinning ear to ear as we sang Let Milo Open the Door. While one of us <clears throat> had tears running down his face. See, I'm not alone here. It was yeah. a perfect moment for both of us. Love makes me teary. Like this shit, stuff like that gets me. Okay. For my photo tax, I have included pictures of her Victorian Gothic wedding cake. As you can see, it's something right out of a Tim Burton film or an Oingo Boingo song. And that is amazing. Which makes sense, Denizio, because as we know, Oingo Boingo composed most of the music, Danny Elfman, for Tim Burton that's movies. So so funny. Look at the second shot. Sense. Look at that cake, KG. Oh, my God, wow. that's stunning. Oh, I'm jealous. Oh, love gets me, I tell you. I'm a hopeless All romantic. Right, Denisio. A hopeless romantic. All right, so you, you raised her on Nightmare Before Christmas, leaning toward the macabre, oingo boingo. Damn, you're a cool dude, Denisio. Gotta love say. It. Beautiful cake. All right, next up. 
Well, let's see here. I'll do the next two. Okay. Coffee Crush Adam in Seattle. Yes! We haven't had an update on the Coffee Crush in a long time. <laughs> hey, been a long time. No update on the Coffee Crush. Oh. Or creative string of expletives. I was listening to Wednesday's October 6th episode and had to pause to write and let you know that the day after my high school graduation, I pierced my own nose with a sewing machine needle. Oh my God. And a baby carrot pushed up my nostril as a stopper. (laughs) I'm sure the stories that people have of this shit. Oh my God. You guys sticking vegetables up your nose to make sure it doesn't go through the other side. I can't. Yes. Send in your piercing stories. Uh, He goes on to say it didn't last. There is a photo, but I figured I'd spare y'all. I appreciate that. And if for some reason it's a Prince Albert, you can spare us the sight of that one too. If it's a piercing story. Just saying. (laughs) All right. Take it away. And uh, next up from Jenna. Hello, Beans Queens. I'm cranky, but your show today made me slightly less. So I took it. I took some me time away from work. Three days until vacation, baby. Anyway, I'm writing because of the shot story triggered a funny memory as my kid self. I was in kindergarten when my mom told me that school was offering TV shots and asked if I was okay with getting one. Why she was asking a five-year-old another story. But I said, sure. I was super excited to watch classic TV at school. Imagine my surprise when instead of some Power Rangers action, I got a needle in the arm and just more classwork. TB shots, man, not TV. Oh, wow. Do you want one? Yeah, hell yeah. Pet tax. Gila the cat judging me from a relaxed position. (laughs) Thanks for making my day suck less. Look at this. That is amazing. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for Uh, that. Okay. This next one is from Aaron H. It's a proud Webby Award attendee, pronouns she and her. Yes, Aaron. Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Oh, sorry. Maybe I should bleep out that last name. Can I? Nope. Hello, Beans Queens. I figured since I've been singing everything to the tune of Hallelujah since this game started, I would throw a verse. Oh, God. Averse your way for the compilation track. Thanks again for all you do. I couldn't make it without you. The Daily Beans is lifeblood. Hallelujah. Okay, that wasn't the submission, but in my head, it was still to the tune of hallelujah. You've broken me. (laughs) LOL. Here's my contribution. (laughs) We know that it will come one day. In diamonds, they will come his way. And Woodward should have shared his info sooner. Ex-president can plead the fifth, the major gall of his major gifts. An orange jumpsuit suit him, he's a loser. He's a loser. loser. Mary said so. He's a loser. He's a loser. (laughs) Nice. Uh, I like the Woodward line and the major gall of his major grifts is pretty good. too. It is very good. Thank you. uh, All the beans. Please come to Denver and give me a reason to leave my house. Love you all bunches and wishing you all a magical day. Attached as a pod pet tax includes Guillermo, the relentless, formerly feral kitty and Ronan, our 105 pound rescue pibble mix who had bilateral knee surgery eight weeks ago and finds being on his back even better than before. (laughs) <laughs> what's a pill oh my god look at the fucking picture ag <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well it's a pitbull what's a i mean what's an we got to figure this out it can't be that hard a pibble what ends in a bble uh, let's see 
There's a new breed called the Pibble. Um, oh my goodness, what a cute <laughs> dog. Dude, that photo is amazing. All right, let's see. What's in a Pibble? Looking it up. Okay. Pamela Reed, Vice President of the SPCA, anti-cruelty team. They said the term pit bull is an umbrella to describe blah, blah, blah. Pit bull, terrier, Staffordshire terrier. But what? Okay. But tell, just fucking tell me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a pit bull. It's a, we're just, it's a pit bull. It's just a pit bull. I, don't know what I mean, not just, right. I mean, a it's rescue a, an amazing pit bull. All right. <laughs> so Maybe cute. it's a pit bull in Look. trouble. It's a, it's a pit bull and a trouble mix. It's a pibble. Look at the spots on the belly. I know. So sweet. She's so cute. The feet up in the air. Oh my goodness. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. And then attention to the tabby. Hi, tabby with the arms. Yes, of course. Hello, arms. Sorry. All right. Thank you all for sending these in. These are incredible. That wedding cake. Holy majority. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I'm going to go listen to The Cure, I think, for a while. And, you know, I just Mason, realized... Danny Elfman. Oh, what did you say? <laughs> You're going to listen to The Cure. How funny. <laughs> I just realized Amy's out this month. I'm going to be covering court. So if you do have any cases for Friday, for Fridays, it's mm-hmm. going to be Dana and AG's court. So send them to us. I'm going to I'm gonna be uh, yep. the magistrate for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> we'll get you some Because Amy's being a famous movie star somewhere, I think. Yes, doing movie star things. Uh, absolutely. But yeah, yeah, we'll get you some robes. It'll be, we'll be legit. We'll be legit. All right, that is our show, everyone. Uh, until tomorrow, when presiding magistrate judge Dana will take over Amy's court. Please, everyone, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the- Wait, tomorrow? Wait, t- what's today's today? Wednesday. Yeah, so tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Hey, look at that. Time travel. Well, you're listening on Thursday. It's all very confusing. This is why I drink. (laughs) This is why I drink. (laughs) Yeah. I drink and I don't know things. Oh, my God. (laughs) Again, let let me try it again. Everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. And take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>